Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. I was born with opinions, but over time, I've lost interest in telling people what to think. I'm always fighting for less opinion, more respect for others' opinions, and I want to avoid sounding too preachy. But it's hard when you feel really strongly about an issue. So, in this episode, I explore what role does opinion have in being a leader. My guest is Claire Kimball, the founder of The Squiz an opinion-free daily newsletter and podcast. Before Claire launched The Squiz, she was a policy advisor in federal politics and worked at Woolworths as head of PR and corporate communications. Claire Kimball, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. I want to start with why did you leave a cushy, well-paid, sought-after role, you're at Woolworths, big salary, to start the squiz? (laughs) It's a really good question. It is a good question. It is a question I've revisited in my mind a few times, I have to say. (laughs) Wasn't that cushy, though? So I think that was probably one of the things that was definitely on my mind at the time in making these choices around what my 40s would look like. Um, the job that I had at Woolworths was as the communications director. So I looked after the corporate comms as well as the retail comms and PR for the global for the global brand, the big brand, um, but also for the retail brand. So it was a big job. Lots of questions from media, but at that time, lots of questions from the market as well. So it was a pretty full-on job. And the question at that time was, do I double down and do another stint at that, like really commit for three years, four years or so? Or do I sort of scratch that itch that I had in the back of my mind around what the squiz could be? The interesting thing about this conversation, I reckon, is you were the person that I was talking to probably the most deeply about those decisions at the time. So you blame me? I kind of blame you. In my dark times, I blame I blame Helen McCabe. So, for full disclosure, that's right. I've been part of the Squiz business um, from the very beginning and have watched its trajectory. I mean, it's an incredibly successful operation now, and I, but I, that's not to that's not to diminish the work that's gone into it. I know it's been a, a pretty. Full, you sure do. You know how much work it takes. It's big, yeah. So let's get a few things out of the way before we get into leadership. What do you now know um, that you didn't know before starting a business? I had a sense, I think, that it would take a lot of work to establish a brand and to make it work. I think I was good at setting expectations for myself around what 
that would look like, and we'll probably talk about that a bit later. But I know now probably that the way that you build a team and bring people along with you, whether that's internally or whether that's investors or the industry, is just so very super important. I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts in this series and it does seem to come back to communications. I think I can always do better on that front. But I think in terms of the sheer amount of work, I don't think I really expected that seven years in, it would dominate probably every waking moment of my life as it currently does and has done for quite a while now. Yeah, and there's those really big highs where you can't believe you've pulled it off and then those really dark days where you go, is this ever going to actually work? But that's for another podcast. Mm. We'll do a small business podcast. Um, I think we should do that. We should do that. Yeah. What does a typical day look like at the Squiz? For me, it looks like most days starting at about 3.34 in the morning, somewhere around that. I kind of never thought that I would be that person that would be that really early bird. Um, I'd worked in politics before and, of course, at Woolworths, as we just talked about, where that communications role, things can kick off pretty early and you need to be on top of things. So I'd always had that work ethic of starting early and getting across things very quickly. The squeeze sort of took that to another level. So very, very early starts. Getting across the news is still a daily delight. It's actually the fun bit. It's not the work bit for me. It gets into publishing that. It gets into then talking about clearing email boxes and doing all those sorts of functional admin things. Lots of admin, as you well and truly know, running a business. Um, Regrouping with the team at nine. I I am still working sort of 15-hour days at the moment. So I'll start at four or six, somewhere in there. If I'm not doing the news run, it'll be six or seven o'clock-ish, but working through till eight o'clock every night at least. The thing that I find confronting about starting a business, and you touched on this from the outset, is how important my leadership skills are. Mm. Because if I'm a poor leader, and and I've had to work on all manner of the skills, it's not going to, it's not going to pull through, particularly the tough bits. What skills do you think are most important if you are to take a small idea into a business of 20-odd staff? Um, Stupid belief that you can do it, I think, at the start. Like, to actually take the step is quite significant. I don't know if you still have these conversations with people, but I remember the overwhelming response was, gee, that's brave. And it wasn't that brave to me because I wasn't that afraid of failure. If it didn't work, I wasn't really all that bothered. And I still kind of think, like, it still might not work. Like, what we want to do, ultimately. um, I'm just going to give you a bit of a pep talk there. That is not the right way to do it. That's not the right (laughs) attitude. It is going to work. It is going to work. single focused. Yeah. All right. Keep going. Yeah, you can buy me a drink and we'll have that (laughs) session a bit later. But no, I think that sense of actually being really clear about what I wanted to get out of it was really, really clear. I wanted to get skills. I thought it was an investment in myself and that came out of my very, you know, sort of singular mind around being a communications expert. It was very clear to me that as the person who was, you know, having the hard conversations with the journos, there weren't that many journos around and there was a decreasing number of journalists. (laughs) And if your job was actually doing that, then that wasn't much of a business model going forward. The future to me, and it's interesting, I think things are starting to catch up to it now, 
building your own channels of communication, being able to be a politician or a corporate brand or a corporate leader, whatever it was, being able to build your own audience, bypass the media to a certain degree, build trust with people was going to be really crucial. And I thought it was going to be a good exercise, the squiz, with just exactly in that. How do you build a newsletter? How do you build a podcast? How do you build an audience and communicate directly? So I thought if it didn't work, I could go back into politics or back into corporate life and actually bring those skills. And it's interesting now to see Commonwealth Bank, Qantas does it really well, um, plenty of others who have their own channels of customers. What do you think your top leadership skills are? I'm very self-critical, as we've just touched on um, around these things. I think I'm good at being reasonable. I think not being rattled easily is a really reassuring thing for a team. I'm pretty good at being very fixed on a goal and just keeping people aligned to that and being clear about what the priorities are. I've got a reasonably good strategy brain. So I'm able to put the pieces together and get that sort of clarity when there's complexity of all the things that you can do. Um, But it's a good and bad thing, I think. I can really fix on a thing and just work towards it. I just interviewed someone else who said that was her superpower. Yeah, right. um, Focusing on something and then just not giving up. Yeah. And I I think that is a key component of a leader who is starting a business or dealing with a tricky problem. Where does your communication skills come in this? Because you were the communications expert mm. um, for a CEO mm. and for, um, uh, you know, a, a prime minister, yep. ultimately. How are you feeling about your skills to deliver the communication um, piece rather than advise on it? I think I could be better at it. I think you're really good at it and I'm always really impressed when we have conversations about all of the things that you're leading future women through and how you bring your team around that. I think I could do a lot better at that, which is the irony as a communications expert. <laughs> well, it's it is it's something that I think, you know, you can you can have a bit of skill at, like you can come, you can be naturally good at it to a point, yeah. but then you do have to work on it. Like yeah. you have to acknowledge that you're only good to a point. Yeah, and I've got a whole lot of baggage as well coming out of being a press secretary where you wield and hold and deal in information in very particular ways. So actually holding on to things and giving the version that you need to give is actually a thing that you exercise. So I'm always very conscious about what am I telling the team and why am I telling them this particular thing at this particular point. Um, I'm quite empathetic, so I think I'm really good at understanding how messages land. Um, But I think it's just so crucial. I think we could all be better at it. I think it's definitely a work in progress for me. Is there anyone that you see that is really good at it? Because I I look at a a Matt Common, who's CEO of Commonwealth Bank, and I think pretty much his entire job is communication now. And he was obviously technically brilliant as a banker. Yeah. Um, Is there anyone you can say that's actually they're very good at it? It's a really good question, I think, because the times lend itself to it being such a critical skill and whether that's external factors or internal ones. I I can't think of an organisation, public or private, that isn't going through something and hasn't been going through something for years. So everyone's skills in that regard have been tested and outed, whether they're good or bad. The thing I'm really keen to explore with you 
And when I was thinking about this interview, I was excited about it because I think um, we go halfway when we're talking privately about this, but opinion, right? So the squiz is opinion-free and that is its success and it's genius. Um, it's also very difficult to do. Mm. So why did you make it opinion-free? You would remember those conversations that we had in the early days about it being the it's it's the cornerstone of anything that I wanted to build in this space. And that was from a really personal point of view that I was just so sick and tired of the way that the media outlets that I had loved and trusted starting to lend themselves into this sort of opinion-led news. Um, that was really disappointing. And I think that's only got worse over the years. And I understand why and I get the model behind it and I totally appreciate it for what it is. But it still leaves this big gap and we're seeing it in the numbers around the diminishing trust in news. It only continues to slide. And the news avoidance, which is something that's being talked about quite a bit. And I think that agenda-led news is a really big part of it. It's something as a heavy news consumer um, and an operative in that space, like actually trying to get facts out, whether it was on behalf of a politician or on behalf of a corporate brand, becoming increasingly difficult as well. So it's something that rubbed me the wrong way. And I just felt that there was a place where someone wanting facts that were engaging, that was still a joy to read and connect with and get that joy that I always felt about consuming news. Um, if they found a space where someone was giving that to them but not telling them what to think would be potentially a winner. So how difficult is it to actually deliver a daily podcast and newsletter that is opinion-free? Really easy. Okay. Really, really easy. Why? How? Again, I think it's that clarity of mission and there's a bit of a formula behind it uh, and a bit of a practice behind it when you're actually sourcing news and putting our short bits together. Um, the other key bit about the squeeze, I guess I should say up front, is that it's short form, that it is a, a practice. It's a in your inbox or in the podcast app at six in the morning. It's designed that you can get a quick look and then you move on. Uh, it's a gateway. We don't pretend to be anyone's all-consuming news consumption for the day. It's, it's a starting point. So I think the, the way we practice it is, is, while it feels quite, I think, conversational and casual, there's actually quite a bit of structure in what we do and that has to balance up each day. And again, to the point, I think it's a feeling for me, like you can feel when it's right. Um, for the team, like actually building a content team and pointing out those bits about what it is and what it needs to be balanced and to feel balanced has been quite an interesting part of my journey and communicating and getting people around that mission. I think it goes back to the part of being a press secretary and a political advisor where you have to understand every angle of every problem to be able to give the best possible advice. And the roles that I was the most successful at were those where someone was actually quite strong in their views and very open to be talked around or at least made aware and engage in alternative ideas. And that was a joy, a lot of fun. I'm interested to know then from a leadership perspective, so mm. you're running a team, and it's something that I grapple with quite often, is 
how relevant is my opinion? And I'm not talking about my opinion on where the business is going. Mm. That's relevant. But my opinion on anything from the political narrative to the impact of climate change to my personal beliefs, in a world where there's so much identity, politics and identity is a thing, how do you navigate that space where, you know, your opinions on those issues can be stripped out of a out of a out of a workplace and out of your leadership skills or you're out of your leadership persona? It's a really good question. And I don't think it's something that anyone has found easy. You and I are probably of a generation where you came to work with a version of yourself and it was something to be professional. What your professional presence was, I think, is quite different to the conversation we're having today about leadership and teams where it's around authenticity. I think as a leader, your probably biggest responsibility is to be a good listener rather than a template for everyone else to fit into. By that I mean, I don't think it's sustainable for any organisation that wants to go ahead to keep replicating yourself and your view and your background. It's very tempting. I've hired a number of people who are a version of me. It's so tempting because it's just easier. (laughs) It's so so much easier. But I think we all know too, there are so many people who are very talented that bring good business from being able to tap other things other than yourself over and over again. That's certainly been my experience. But yeah, I think this authenticity versus professionalism is something that's very, very difficult in modern leadership. If I was in a bigger organisation and leading a much bigger team, I think I'd be spending a lot of time actually grappling with it. With the squiz, one of the delightful things about it is the things that we talk about The things that get us excited is media trends around, you know, how to actually reach audiences and engage audiences. It's the business and commercial side. It's not what we think of Anthony Albanese or Peter Dutton or whatever it is. We're not actually spending our day talking about those sorts of things. We're having good conversations about how we all move forward with the joint mission. And that's what excites us. Yeah, I I felt that I've really had to put some guardrails around opinion and Mm. and in the areas where it's fraught or grey, kind of say that those opinions we need to park because if we don't, we're not respectful of the diversity. So politics is a good example. Yeah. if you don't say everyone's opinions are, you know, validated or or real or entitled, they're entitled to hold them, then you're at risk of really uh, offending or having a really narrow perspective and lack of diversity, as you say. Yeah. Um, do you think people have more opinions today than they did in the past? Or do you think it's just, just we're so much more transparent by virtue of probably social media? I, th- I think it is the social media thing, isn't it? It's a it's a channel that we never had before where you're basically asked to show up in a certain way and how you show up on social media a lot of the times is around what you think about something. That's the conversation. 
depending on what channel, if you're on Instagram, might be a dog, which is what I do mostly. Um, if you, anyone wants to look at my social media presence, like, I don't know how to wrangle this stuff, so it's pictures of my dog. Yeah. And that's about it. Much safer. <laughs> um, no, I, th- I don't know that we have more opinions. I think the interesting part, and I was reflecting on this on our uh, weekly wrap podcast with Kate last week around propaganda and the conflict in the Middle East and exactly how that's all transpiring. Angus Campbell, who is the head of the Defence Force, gave a really excellent speech a couple of months ago and he talked about climate change and all sorts of stuff, which was super interesting. But he also talked about the emergence of artificial intelligence and his fears for that world when it comes to mis- and disinformation. But the step before that which really impressed upon me the challenge, I think, and these sorts of issues is around how basically opinion has trumped fact. And that means in this post-truth world, we're all struggling with exactly what is real. And when you're a subject matter expert and you know what's what, when the economy, that information economy is opinion and that's held at the same level, it's very, very difficult. And that's before we even get into AI and deep fakes and all of that sort of stuff. The lid that has been taken off, our general discourse, our civics, our engagement with each other has just changed so fundamentally in ways I think we're still grappling with. But I do think both the Squiz and FW, and certainly me personally, have felt as the leader of that brand that I've had to be quite proactive Mm. in terms of holding the line that all opinion is to be respected. There is grey. We need to be okay with that. Mm. No matter how strongly you might feel, um, and of course the current debate about what's happening in the Middle East is an excellent example Mm. because if you're not in that debate and you haven't lived it, you can just walk into a very emotional environment and you can see the media really grappling with it. But that's just a, that's, that's an example on speed. But I am kind of fascinated by, you know, how do you bring your authentic self to work and not say on Monday morning that I spent the weekend handing out how to vote cards for the Greens or being at a polling booth um, arguing against a fundamental change to our constitution without offending someone, like not someone, offending a lot of people. And doesn't it feel like an old-fashioned view that we need to just respect everyone's views on these things? I do feel it's very old-fashioned. And hear people out and actually listen to what they're saying before your next thought is, I have to tell you that you're wrong. That's right. And and what I'm trying to um, grapple with uh, as a leader is... What is the right way mm. of managing that? Now, what if you're a different leader? You're not mm. me or you. Um, mm. You and I, as a journalist, have always respected views and love the grey and always. And I can get, to, I can totally be swayed around to alternative views in the space of about five minutes flat Absolutely. from a good arguer. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but what if I have really strong views and I'm the leader? And I am very, my whole brand and my whole authenticity is built around a particular philosophy. <laughs> It depends on, yeah, exactly what you want to be and what you want your 
business to be, I guess, or what you want your organisation to look like and the people you want around you. Um, I think the best example I had was when I was working in the corporate world and we had very clear guidelines around how to actually do these things. You were fine to belong to a political party. You were fine to go and hand out for the Greens on the weekend or argue on any particular side of a referendum. That was fine. It had to be declared to your boss around those things because you never know when these sorts of conflicts come up, like any sort of conflict. But the point was around actually not doing that business at work. It's okay to talk about. For some people, they might not like that so much, but we're each responsible for ourselves. The thing I was always interested in, and it's something that gets talked about in politics quite a bit, is about bringing a version of yourself, um, being the best version of yourself. doesn't mean that it's your authentic self. It just means that it's authentic enough that in that environment, you can sit in that comfortably, be honest, and actually other people can transact with you as well. I think people have this responsibility to be able to make work work, be with their colleagues and actually do the task at hand. If you want to be opinionated, there's some organisations that probably aren't for you. If you want to start your own business with a particular skew, that's fine. It might be very successful, it might not. You might find your customers or your customers might go, actually, that's not for me. But I think that personal responsibility bit is super important, whether you're the most junior staff member or the most senior. And look, I think when leadership experts talk about authenticity, Mm. um, you know, they're talking about vulnerability and bravery in in many ways. Like Mm. it's, it's as much about saying, you know, the truth about your life, Mm. you know, less so than your strong political affiliations or um, religious beliefs or whatever it is. It's it's being prepared to say, you know, I'm gay or I'm straight or I'm non-binary or I'm I'm a single parent. You know, it's more about that kind of vulnerability Mm. than it is about trying to hammer home a personal, you know, political or um, ideological viewpoint. I think this question too about where do you want work to sit in your life? Good question, Claire. Like where, it's, where does work sit in your life? Like about 99% <laughs> of it, I think. I think that's right. That's It is. And that makes it harder because if it yeah. is 98% of your life, very hard to come into work and not feel compelled to say, I'm going to be protesting this weekend because passionate people you know, a passionate people. will want to do that, yeah. And yeah. that's okay sometimes. It's... That's okay for them. But I'm concerned about how I lead that team. Yeah. And how I create the environment where they can be them and somebody else can have a completely different view and what I do and what I, what I say in that space. Because I might actually side with one of them personally. Yeah. But creating that environment where both are just as valid. We've talked over the years about how you do facilitate very strong characters people who do have strong opinions, like by virtue of the fact that they're great contributors to future women, is that they're they're very clear on these things. They believe strongly in gender equality. Absolutely. Um, From our end, I think, because we've crafted that mission clearly enough around gender-free, opinion-free, being able to actually focus on facts, we've got like-minded people around us as well. So that clarity in in mission, I think, is super important. And it certainly helps me as a leader to be as clear as I possibly can 
to get those sorts of like-minded people around us. But I think for big organisations where that's a little bit less, we're a little bit more mission-led, I think. You know, you're delivering a service for thousands and millions of people. Really hard. So I'm going to flip this around and ask you from a reverse situation where you are the staff member and the communications expert working for someone who has incredibly strident conservative views and that person was Tony Abbott. How did you manage a situation where he's on the public record believing in X, Y, or Z, has done for his entire life and that's his brand? Yep. And you just think he's just an idiot. He's completely (laughs) wrong. And and, and what do you say to someone like that? (laughs) Look, I never thought he was an idiot. (laughs) This is, I guess, a part of the understanding. You know, people do have very different views. Um, I'm pro-choice. I'm very pro-women. you know, there's there's all sorts of things you could unpick in the persona and the, I guess, perception of who Tony Abbott was in that public life um, and how that all lined up. Um, that was my role in the office. I very quickly found a, a great working relationship with Tony because he was willing to listen and he wanted to be challenged. He'd had a team around him for a very long time because he is a strong personality, delightful to work with. But he, of course, is who he is and he's unapologetic about that. But the role that I filled and why we worked very well together was that I was quite happy to challenge that and was from day one. So he was a really great boss to work for in a way that I really felt like I was contributing to a movement in that sort of time around what good conservative government could look like. I think. Yeah, we'll have to. I'll have to write my book about the ins and outs of so, the actual bits and pieces of all of that. Yeah, because it is interesting. I think how you do contribute, and I think to that public. I've always been quite public service minded. Um, when someone like Tony asks you to come and help, I think you've got to go and help. And I would actually look at it from the other side as well. Yeah, I mean, look, just to you know, to go back to our earlier point. I mean, often at FW, I would make the point that. You know, it's not accidental that Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison got elected. Mm. People voted for them. Mm. So that in itself is something you have to respect. So We're looking um, at that with Donald Trump and Joe Biden right now, I, right? I have, you know? I have more issues with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but back to how you navigate working with someone with strong opinion. Mm. Um, how did you deliver an alternative view to someone? So... Again, I'm, I'm looking at giving our listeners tangible assistance when they're in a situation. I mean, you chose to be there, but yep. many people find themselves in a situation where they've got very forthright boss yep. and they're wondering how to deliver unpalatable or alternative views. You do it with facts and not with emotion. And I think that's so critical to so many parts of the workplace the only way right from the start that I learned to even have the conversation to actually contribute to what it was that you were looking to do is to be factually correct and have the intellectual curiosity to be able to think about things that maybe other people hadn't necessarily come across. That's just reading widely, sitting in the thing, looking at alternative views as well, not just taking the one path. Um, being able to, for me anyway, come back with a rounded view 
and I'm a classic Gemini in these sort of things, you know, on one hand, but on the other. But if I felt strongly about something, yeah, not being emotional and being factual was the only way. What are the key leadership skills that you admire? I admire people who are able to be subject matter experts, but leave enough space for others to contribute. I really admire people who are very good at what they do. That's always been, I think, a thing for me, whether it's someone who runs very well, you know, around an athletics track or whether they're very, very proficient at their professional, you know, behind a desk kind of skill. That's always, I'm just enamoured by those sorts of people. But to be a leader, I think, to leave the space for other people to contribute is probably, I think, the biggest, greatest skill. And that gets harder as you've been leading for longer? I think so, because you're just so used to doing what you do and you know how to do it and it's just easier to do it this way, to be open-minded enough to be challenged um, and to have other people bring their skills and their ideas is is a real skill. I think the, the more people you lead, the harder it is to mm. um, feel comfortable. Yeah. Because there's just more people telling you you're wrong. Yeah. One way or another. Um, Leaders you've admired? I think the leaders I've admired the most aren't in politics. We could talk about that at length, I think, around the skills that you learn in politics, which aren't particularly great in a structured way. They're instinctive, I think. They're communicators. They're communicators and they're it's adrenaline fueled response rates. With a different audience. They're not... Totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... I don't look at that as a great leadership model. Um, I certainly think the time that I spent in the retail world, to see people who particularly lead very big teams, you know, nationally, they're like politicians in that they have to get these thousands of people to do the thing that they want them to do, um, to be charismatic enough as well as strategic enough because ultimately your success or failure is in a spreadsheet that comes in every day. There's some fabulous retail leaders and I'm always fascinated by retail and the machinations of leadership in retail because I think it's it's so important to us as a country, as one of the biggest employers, but we also see it show up when we shop or whether we go online. Um, yeah, retail I think is an excellent business for that. Yeah, I used to come into contact semi-regularly with Bernie Brooks, who oh, was yeah. the CEO of yeah. Maya, yeah. Um, and he just oozed. Charisma, and yeah. he could, and he'll do it in like well, he was at Woolies. Like he was, oh, all roads lead to Woolworths for yeah. these sorts of things. And why do you think that is? Like, is that that ability to kind of a your? I'm going to answer my own question here, though. Yeah, a your ability to corral such a diverse workforce. Mm. So you've got your people on the ground in your Central Coast Woolies. Yeah, from 14 years old doing yeah. their casual job. To a very big corporate affair, a corporate head office with the best paid Lawyers, yeah. yeah, retailers, buyers, strategy yeah. people. Yeah, they're smart people. Good retailers are, are incredible in the way that they can communicate to shoppers as well as that, that 14-year-old on the Central Coast right through to the top. So do you teach them that? So there's someone going in and saying to Bernie Brooks or Brad Banducci, you know, you have to work at this or is 90% they're born with it? They gravitate there. Yeah, they're good at retail because they're those people. I don't think that kind of leadership can be taught very easily. Um, There's a bit of a change like from the Bernie Brooks, Roger Corbett kind of world. 
for your younger listeners probably have never heard of these guys, but these guys were the giants of retail in Australia. Good and bad versions of that because they're very heavy-handed, like it's the cult of these people, whereas these days it just doesn't work that way anymore. So I'm always fascinated to see what Brad Banducci and other retail leaders are doing and how they're navigating that space because it's different, but they still have to be very good retailers. And being very good retailers means excellent communication skills. When a board like Woolworths, and I know you were privy to these discussions, are looking for the next CEO, what skills do they put at a premium? It's a contradiction at the moment because what they say they want isn't actually probably what the guys who have been doing this forever in their heart of hearts actually want. Um, It's at a bit of a crossroads, I think. Modern leadership and the cult of a leader who has a strong hand to who can make things happen are actually quite contrary. I'm fascinated by how that all plays out. And it's really interesting to see how it's playing out overseas as well. But I think the the challenge for boards these days around diversity, which we know works for big retailers anyway, big companies full stop actually, they have to be able to communicate with everyone, not just the white woman here or the white woman there, blokes as well in a very binary, on-off kind of way. So I think it's, yeah, it's really fascinating to see that junction because I don't think that conflict has been resolved yet. Do you think about your leadership skills? I do regularly, yeah. And probably because those uncomfortable moments come up. That's when I think of it the most, not not when it's going well. (laughs) And I think I've nailed something probably at the times where I think I could do a better job. What skills do you think if you could wave a magic wand, would you wish to be better at? I probably would want to be a little bit more trusting to your point about when you do something for long enough and going, well, this is the way we're going to do it. And there's only so many hours in the day. Just having a little bit more time for people, I think, to really understand what it is that they want and need. Um But I also think like communications just generally, as I say, my tendency is to hold on to information and then try and land it when I think it needs to be landed and also not worry people with the intricacies of the ins and outs of what we're dealing with. Like when I've worked it out, I'll tell you what the thing is rather than bringing people along. I think that's what I need to work on. I think my team would agree with that. Well, the other thing about leadership, of course, is being self-aware, knowing, yeah. what, knowing what you're not good at. And that's pretty tough Yeah, because you're so busy scrambling. And it's torture because you and I are both quite self-aware. So you actually, like it goes through your mind. Know what you're rubbish at. All the time. Yeah. Well, nothing like starting a business to know what you're really rubbish at. <laughs> I just can just list 20 things. And um, What do you think you, I'm fascinated, what do you think you need to work on? I am impatient. Attention to detail, Mm. terrible. I don't read any email properly. I read half of it (laughs) uh, and then think I know the rest and answer before I finish. I write sentences that are completely back to front because I'm so busy. Your brain is going so fast. I've moved to the next three steps. I expect an awful lot Mm. of people and sometimes that's probably unfair. This is where, it's a good point, that one. This is where I think who you work very closely with at that senior leadership level is really important. Um, Kate and I are a bit of yin and yang on exactly that point. I go in thinking, actually, what we do isn't that hard. And the skills that I bring in that, you know, the doing of the squeeze 
isn't actually that complicated. What I've come to learn in hiring people and getting them to do the tasks, it is actually quite hard. And having news judgment is a bit of a gift that I've got after 20 years of experience. So, you know, expecting someone with five years coming out of, you know, university and working in their first journalism job and they don't have that kind of foresight of news, that's not a reasonable thing to ask. Um, So I'm usually disappointed that people aren't like ready to hit the ground running and go, whereas Kate is actually surprised that anyone can do anything. Like she's delighted when someone can step up and it's like, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, you can't do all of it. Um, Claire Kimball, it's um, always brilliant to get your insights and loved talking about opinions with you today. Thank you for coming in. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.